Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not all those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is precious, it is life-giving, it is eternal. May your Holy Spirit speak to us today through the reading and preaching of the word, convicting us, bringing comfort and peace, and strengthening our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week in Hebrews, we heard about how Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses is a great man of God, a man who is shown by the book of Hebrews, to be a faithful servant of God. Despite being a great man, despite being faithful, Moses was still simply a servant in God's house. Jesus, however, we heard last week, is not merely a servant, but a son. In fact, he is the eternal son of God, who is not merely a member of God's house, but he, as we heard, is the builder of God's house. And upon hearing this message last week, uh, you may remember the challenge it gave all of us, a challenge to examine our lives and uh, look at all the good gifts that God has given us. Just as Moses was a good gift to God's people, examine the, God, the, the good gifts God has given us and ask the question, am I making the good gifts of God more important making them superior to Jesus Christ in my own life? Am I making idols out of the things and the people that God has given me? And am I valuing the gifts more than the giver? And there is a warning in that challenge, a warning for us to realize that even good gifts from God, whether it's our family, our church, our money, our careers, our grades, our involvement in sports, whatever it is, if we take these good gifts and we idolize them, if we make them more valuable than Christ in our lives, then these good gifts actually become a danger to our spiritual condition. They can lead us away from Christ rather than leading us to praise and worship and thank God for his many good gifts. They can cause us to fall away from the gospel. This week's passage dives deeper into the dangers of falling away. 
You may remember that earlier in our series on Hebrews, I said there are actually five warning passages throughout this book dealing with the sin of apostasy. The sin of apostasy simply means falling away. Now, I do want to clarify something. It is our conviction here in the Presbyterian Church of America that the New Testament, really the whole scripture, is abundantly clear Those who truly look to Christ in repentance and faith, those who truly look to him as Savior and Lord, will never fall away. These warning passages in the book of Hebrews are not intended to make us doubt the idea, the doctrine, the truth of eternal security. The great truth that for those who belong to Christ, nothing, as the Apostle Paul says, neither life nor death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. And that also means, brothers and sisters, our own sin, our own selves, our own doubts, our own struggles. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He who began a good work in you, the Apostle Paul says, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Those who are truly saved cannot and will not lose their salvation. The book of Hebrews will actually testify to that great truth later on in the book. But these warning passages, like we are talking about today, they do not contradict the overwhelming testimony of scriptures concerning the great truth of eternal security, that God's people are safe in the hands of Christ. Nor are they here in order to cause fear and doubt in the minds of God's people. Rather, these warning passages are a call to us, as Peter says, to confirm our election and calling. They're a call for us to examine our profession of faith. And yes, they are a warning to us that if we are lying, if we are deceiving others and perhaps even ourselves with our profession of faith, if we see and hear the works and the words of God and yet we do not truly know him, which is to look to him, trust in him, rely upon him, rest in him, have fellowship with him, and we face terrible judgment. These warning passages on apostasy, on falling uh, falling away, they are very important for local churches to hear, for local congregations, because the reality is, and the author of Hebrews knows this, the reality is, is that on any given Sunday, in any given church building, there are going to be those among us who with their lips profess Jesus Christ, but they will ultimately prove that their profession of faith is false. It's a lie. And a deception. And these passages are intended to speak to those people. Those who may be among us who with their lips declare Christ is Lord, but who with their hearts have grown cold, have grown hard, reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not that these people were once saved and now they're not. It's that they were never truly saved in the first place. They never truly believed. That's what our passage is about this morning. 
a hard passage, a difficult passage, an uncomfortable passage. Remember, I shared that quote with you, that the job of the pastor is to comfort the afflicted, but it is also to afflict the comfortable. And this passage is about afflicting the comfortable. Those who have grown complacent in their walk with Christ. Those who are too comfortable with their sins. Those who may want the experiences and the benefits and the blessings and the promises of being part of the family of God here on earth, but who do not truly know God nor desire to truly serve Him. Or to put it in the words of the great American theologian Johnny Cash, this is meant to bring affliction to those who say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Now, as we look at our passage this morning, I want to again remind you of the historical context of Hebrews. I know I do this every week, but it is so important that we remember why this book was written. This was a book written to first century Jews who have converted to Christianity. And now, because of many reasons, primarily, I believe, because of persecution from Rome and other non-believing Jews, they are considering a return to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is, is encouraging them to not go back to the types and shadows of the sacrificial system found in the Old Testament. Don't go back to that uh, type and shadow which has pointed to the fulfillment, Jesus Christ. Now that Christ has come, you cannot go back to the shadows. I should make something clear. Maybe I haven't made this clear throughout this sermon series. And if I haven't, then I, I do apologize and ask for your forgiveness. But Hebrews is not calling these Jewish Christians to stop being Jewish. Nowhere throughout the New Testament are Jewish Christians told to abandon their identity as Jews. Nowhere are they told to stop being Jews. In fact, Paul writes in Romans that there's a great benefit to being a Jew because it was through the Jews that God brought the prophets, gave the laws, the covenants, and things like this. Rather, the call is to be Jewish Christians. Realize that the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed towards has now come and has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The real danger here for these first century Jews is not that they would remain Jewish. The real danger is that they would become Jews who do not recognize that the Messiah has come. That the Messiah is the fulfillment of all their old covenant worship practices. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the festivals, of the feasts, of the priesthood, of the prophets, of the law. The real danger is an abandonment of Jesus Christ. And so our passage this morning tells the very, tells of the very real danger that faces these early Jewish Christians, the danger of falling away. The author opens this passage with a quoting of Psalm 95, which we sang earlier in our service this morning. And here he gives us a picture of what apostasy looks like, looking at the nation of Israel as they were brought out of Egypt. Last week I said that the exodus from Egypt, the deliverance of God's people from a land of slavery and bondage, was the greatest picture of redemption found in the Old Testament. But notice in our passage this morning that we, we see the author of Hebrews reminds us that the entire generation of Israelites who were brought out of Egypt died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. 
We see that in the final verses of chapter 3, which we read earlier. But here in verse 7, the author begins to quote Psalm 95, which uh, is pointing to two specific incidents in the life of Israel after the Exodus, which embodies, I think, in his mind, the unbelief of that generation of Israelites. He writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, before we talk about those two specific incidences that he has in mind as he writes this, I I do want to point out one thing. I want you to notice the high view of Scripture that the author of Hebrews has here. He's about to quote Psalm 95, and before he does so, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, do you get what he's saying? He's bearing testimony to the truth that the Holy Scriptures are indeed the Word of God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And when you read the Scriptures, you are reading God's Word. And so the author of Hebrews can say, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense says, not therefore as the Holy Spirit said. Brothers and sisters, God is still speaking today in his holy word. I hope this is a reminder to us. We don't need to seek extra biblical words from God. We don't need to look elsewhere, try to have a personal experience where God speaks to us, strive after these things to hear God speak. If you want to hear God speak, the Puritan John Owen said, then read your Bible. And he went on to say, if you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. Through Psalm 95, the Holy Spirit is saying saying to the first century church, saying to us today, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. Again, two events he has in mind here. The first is from Exodus 17. Exodus 17 is the story of the Israelites having been delivered out of Egypt, coming and complaining, grumbling against God and against Moses. In fact, they are ready to kill Moses. And they are saying ridiculous things like God has delivered us out of Egypt only to have us die in the wilderness. And if you remember this story, God tells Moses, because the Israelites were thirsty, they wanted water. Again, a good thing that they made an idol. They needed water and God tells Moses, Moses goes to God and says, what should I do? These people are ready to kill me. And Moses says, take your, or God says, take your staff and strike the rock and I will provide water. but and, and Moses does this, and God provides water for his people. But this is seen as a great sign of unfaithfulness from the Israelites, that they would dare to grumble and complain and even threaten to kill God's prophet after God had done such a miraculous work among them. Because here they were, a people who had just seen God do wondrous and mighty acts. They were the people who saw the ten plagues, They saw the Red Sea split in two, and they walked across dry land. They were the people who saw the pillar by night and the cloud by day. They were the people who would wake up every morning and find this heavenly bread, this this manna from heaven miraculously laying on the ground for them to eat day after day after day. And yet here they were rebelling against God hardening their hearts, not truly believing. 
That's the first event that Psalm 95 references. The Exodus 17 account of the grumblings of the people. A day of testing. The author of Hebrews continues to quote Psalm 95 by saying that these rebellious people saw God's works for 40 years. And says, therefore I, God, was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The second moment of rebellion in the minds of the authors of Psalm 95 and in the book of Hebrews is from Numbers 14. Numbers 14 is an event where the people are just outside of the promised land. They have come to the border. And Israel sends 12 spies in, in chapter 13 of Numbers. The spies go, they check out the land, they come back. And all of them say, this is an amazing land, it's flowing with milk and honey, the fruit there is huge. But there are also giants in the land. And 10 out of those 12 spies say, we can't go in. We can't do it. And in Numbers 14, the people of Israel lift up their voices. They, it says that, Numbers 14 says that they raised a loud cry and wept. And they complained. And once again, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron and said, we can't take the promised land. Let's just go back to Egypt. Because of this, the Lord turned them away from the promised land, forced them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation of unfaithful, unbelieving Israelites died in the wilderness. Out of that entire generation, only Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who said, let's go in, the Lord is with us, we can take this land. Only Joshua and Caleb actually entered the promised land. Even Moses, because of his sin, only got to see the land from a distance. And why? Because those people, that unbelieving generation, did not know God. Think about this. Over two million people left Egypt in the Exodus. Two million people saw God's works. They experienced firsthand this amazing act of God's deliverance from slavery, from bondage. They saw his miracles. They saw his works. And yet, out of those two million people who left Egypt, only two of them got to the promised land because of sin, because of unbelief. They were objects of God's wrath. They died in the wilderness and did not enter God's rest, which means in in Psalm 95 that they did not enter the promised land. But the promised land was to be a picture of the rest, the eternal rest that we would have in Jesus Christ, both now and both, and, and also when we die and our souls go to be with Christ, but also the promised land was a picture of the new creation where God would again make his dwelling place among us. And this is the warning that the author of Hebrews was giving to that first century church. Do not be like that unbelieving generation. And that's a warning not only for the original audience of Hebrews in the first century, that's a warning for people today in the 21st century. You see, you can experience, you can see the mighty works of God, but to see them, experience experience them is not the same as resting in God. You cannot rest 
in those experiences. No response to an altar call. No saying the sinner's prayer. No dramatic conversion experience can truly save you if your hearts are not changed by the Holy Spirit. How many people experience such things and yet ultimately prove to be false in their professions? Ultimately fall away. Many of us here can probably think of more than one person in our lives who claim to know Christ, claim to have these dramatic experiences, and yet ultimately fell away. Because having an experience, seeing and hearing of the mighty works of God is not the same as knowing God. And therefore, the challenge of our passage this morning is in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. Examine your hearts. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your religious experiences? Are you trusting in a prayer that you said at one point in your life? Or, or in raising your hand at a revival meeting? Or coming forward during an altar call? Or maybe you're trusting in your good works? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? As the only way of salvation? As the true and living God who came and lived among us and died and paid the penalty for our sins and rose again from the dead and as the Lord and Savior who is coming again someday in judgment. Our religious experiences mean absolutely nothing if they do not lead to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. If your religious experience does not lead you to sing out in Christ alone, my hope is found, he is my rock, my strength, my song, then those experiences are worthless. They're nothing more than a moment of emotion-driven ecstasy. The challenge here is to examine our hearts, to make sure Christ is the object of our faith, not our experiences. Now, I want us to notice something else. Look at verse 13. Verse 12 gives us this call to take care, to examine our hearts. But verse 13 calls us to something else. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here is a recall, uh, here is a call, here is a reminder for us as the church. Notice this examination of our hearts doesn't just happen on our own. Our Christian walk is not about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. Here we have a call as a congregation, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to exhort. That means to strongly encourage, to urge one another on every day, as long as we live on this earth, so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see what the author of Hebrews is saying? He's saying that we need one another, brothers and sisters. We need each other to exhort, to encourage, to urge one another on 
in holiness. We need one another to hold each other accountable. Show us our sin that we might be blind to. We need one another and we need to be willing to say both hard things to one another, but also to hear hard things from one another. To help each other to examine our hearts and root out unbelief so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I think this speaks to the truth that you neglect the gathering. We, we all neglect the gathering of God's people, neglect the local church, neglect this body of believers at our own spiritual peril. There's no such thing as a lone gunman Christian. We need the body of Christ around us. We need each other. I, I need you. And believe it or not, you need me. We need each other so that we can make sure that we are not being hardened. So that we can make sure, make our election and calling sure. So that we can encourage and urge one another on in holiness. So that we will not be like those two million Israelites who, despite witnessing and experiencing amazing things from God, did not ultimately truly believe. So that we will, as the author of Hebrews says in verse 14, hold our original confidence, which we said last week was the gospel of Jesus Christ, firm to the end, and thus enter fully into God's eternal rest. I hope that's what we do as a congregation. You know, as we, we have heard, there's a great danger for us, for our church, if this is not what we as a local church body do for one another. This is our, this is part of our calling as the people of God. You know, and I can tell you, there's nothing more heartbreaking to a pastor than to know that among his flock, there are some who will ultimately fall away, who will prove their original profession of faith to be false. And I'm not naive enough to believe that everyone who sits under my teaching and preaching will ultimately enter God's rest. That's the nature of the local church. That's the reality of this world. It's the tragic truth of living in a sin-laden world. But my hope is in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will all join me in the effort to exhort one another every day while we still have breath in this world. I hope that you are all dedicated. And I believe that most of you, if not all of you are, I hope that you are all dedicated and will join in this effort to encourage one another every day, urge one another on every day in the gospel so that we all would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that we would all, by the wonderful, boundless, infinite grace of God, enter together, enter together into God's eternal rest. That's my prayer for our congregation this morning. And we say, may it be so. Amen.